Blanton's, Blanton's Single, Single Barrel, Barrel Bourbon. Bourbon. I almost forgot what we were going to say. I, you always I almost that. did. I got it. I, I fumbled Josh. a little bit. But no, I'm, I'm okay. Dude, we, it was 30 seconds ago we talked about this. I had short-term memory issues. <laughs> if I don't write this shit down, I'm fucked. You, you, you fuck. It is written down. It's on the... Hit the button. Who are those fellas down at the end of the bar? Those are the McGlynn boys. It's best to just let them be and listen to what they gotta say. Ask if you must, drink if you want, and disregard the rules because this, this is the tapping question. Go on another Thursday night at the Tavern in Question. I'm Ian, that's Josh, and we are here for your weekly evening shenanigans. Your weekly Thursday evening shenanigans? I don't know where that's going. Yeah. It's a, I, I have hair on my face, so it's a, I'm getting used to the feel of like talking with hair on my face. I'm not sure where that is. Hi, Josh. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> Good. That's good. I'm glad you're okay. Glad one of us is doing well. I mean, well, relatively speaking. So. <laughs> Dude, it's good to see you. It's good to be back here. I uh, we, we took a bit of a break, uh, and now we're getting back into the swing of things on our Thursday night shenanigans, and uh, I have missed this mm-hmm. so much. This is it's just it's amazing how something becomes just such like a big part of your everyday life, and then when you got to take a break from that one thing, uh, like how just like I remember just like how I walked into the bedroom and I, you know, just sitting there and you know Christina was in there. She's like, "What?" And I'm like, "It's Thursday." She's like, okay, we want to go do something. I was like, "Well, no, it's Thursday." <laughs> what are we gonna do? Like, I, you know, uh, but. Uh, but no, it's uh, it, dude. It's good to be back. It's good to be here with you. I am super excited. See, I I have, I always had the issue of uh, when we stop, but then when we pick back up. So when we stop, the first few Thursdays, it's like, man, I should be doing something right now. And then of course on when we come back, I'm just kind of chilling. I'm like, man, shouldn't I be doing something? It's like, oh shit. <laughs> Get up, go, go, go. I get all my shit together. It's like, shit, I don't have a new story. But fuck, I, you know, we figure it out, though. It's okay. But we seldom come to the desk with the, with the new story, though. Yeah. So it's, it's not uh, you know, off-brand of us to show up with our phones in hand going, oh, what the fuck are we going to talk about? <laughs> you know, it's like we're all about the professionalism here at the, at the tavern in question. But, you know, we don't judge other people. You don't get to judge us. I mean, you can try. We're not going to really care, but go ahead and drive. We're not just going to care. Yeah. <laughs> Literally 500,000 million podcasts to go listen to. You can help yourselves to any one of those if we are not your cup of tea. But if you're here, we're probably your cup of tea. You're welcome. Fair enough. All right. Speaking the of the news desk, are you ready to head over there? Let's go.
So starting off tonight, yeah, here we go again. Ian's got a great story of love and friendship and kindness and wonderful things, right? Nope, sure don't. Nope, here we go. So this doctor has a breakdown, right? He's living in California. There's the reason. I'm just kidding. Sorry if we have listeners in California. I'm not bashing your state. They gone. Uh, okay, I was a little bit. Um, but anyway, so apparently this dude, right, he just packs up the family, puts them in their little Tesla, and proceeds to drive them off of a 250-foot cliff. Now, uh, we, we could be talking about travesty and tragedy and great loss and all awful, terrible things, but no, everybody's alive, Oh, no. So, this dude's going to jail. Uh, Probably. Uh, (laughs) Of course, investigation is pending, right? Uh, But apparently he has led on to the fact that he was trying to uh, send them all. Have you seen that TikTok? The Asian guy. I will send you to Jesus. (laughs) Anyway. We'll put a link to it in the show notes that I'll forget to put it on there anyway. But but we'll give it a try. Uh, it's it's really funny. Anyway, so he's on his way to send them to Jesus. Um, there's your context. And uh, uh, it doesn't work. So I, I think we need to talk a little bit about the engineering of a Tesla. Yeah. And why we should all own one. Because this son of a bitch launched this Tesla. Uh, and you look at the pictures and you're like, Fuck. Because it's not like it rolled down a hill, right? There's no grass. It's like rocks and then space and then rocks at the bottom, right? So this dude launches this car and they all make it. Now, so now you say make it. Oh, they ain't happy. Well, no, 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 no. Oh, duh. But I'm thinking, were they able to go home at the end of the day or are they all like in critical condition? Because there's making it and then there's made it. You know, if you're making it, that means you are, by all clinical standpoints, alive. But when you, you know, you 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 made it, is you walk away and you're like, oh man, that was close. We should probably go home. You know, I mean that that kind of shit. So I mean, so like, is is the family like stable or are they like home or like there does? So uh, the dude, the driver, is stable and uh, due to be released here uh, very soon from the hospital or get discharged from the hospital. I don't know if they're going to release him. He's probably going to go from one bed to a different bed with bars. Um, But uh, to be determined. So, uh, (laughs) but every, like the the wife and the kids, uh, they have not disclosed their, their disposition, their you know, stable, critical, whatever. They're just all alive. Okay. Everybody survived. That's fair. So, um, and it's been days. So this okay. was, when did he go? Oh. And nope. and what's funny is that the, <laughs> so it was earlier this week, I think it was like Tuesday. Anyway, uh, so it was earlier this week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody is, uh, you know, it, it was a miracle, quote unquote, um, that everybody made it, and uh, apparently this this place has been known for for wrecks in the past. This is where people go to run their car off, you know, do like the Thelma and Louise freaking moment. No, I I don't know. I no no. You know, I I get the reference, but like, what do you have to do to a spot when you know that it's becoming known for that? 
It's like, you need to get a big, giant fucking billboard to put on the edge of this cliff. I mean, because if it's getting known for people driving off it, well, that or California just needs to get its shit together. <laughs> well, I think it's California needs to get its shit together and. Um, <laughs> and. Move that Hollywood sign just a little bit. And you could save so many lives. So many lives. If the D is right there, then they'll, right? just, you know, they'll, just, take, they'll just take the D to the face and not go off the cliff. I thank you. <laughs> okay. I was like, pretty sure that's a dick joke, but <laughs> Yeah, that's where we're going. We we are in that location tonight. <laughs> and, and the tavern is back, boys and girls. Uh, uh we're making dick jokes. All right. Uh yes. So apparently that they were like the 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 perfect little family in their community. They did like all kinds of great community outreach stuff. And so, so there's a little befuddlement uh, surrounding this whole case. They're not really sure what's going on. Of course, you know, what people see from the outside looking in often is not the case. So uh, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this investigation. Uh, and then maybe seeing like how the wife and kids are doing, make sure that everybody's like good to go. For sure. And, and see how that goes. Now uh, at a location close to this one, not too long ago, uh, well, not too long ago, I guess it was years ago, but uh, in 2018, there was uh, very close to this place, uh, a lady launched herself and her six kids off of the cliff, and none of them made it. So I think there's an interesting comparison here. And again, I want to go back to the engineering of the Tesla. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if everybody was buckled in because nobody, none of them knew what was going on, right? And then the airbag system and all this other stuff that allowed them to survive, right. uh, That is that that's insane. Yeah. So... Uh, hats off to the engineers or, uh, you know, maybe it was just divine intervention, you know, that, uh, that came in and, and saved the day. But either way, that's, that's pretty fucking amazing. You got to think of like the, the, the mental fuck up that happened in that. And it's like, a part of me wonders like if like at the last second he said, oh shit, this is a bad idea. And like, maybe tried to stop or did something that changed the trajectory uh, trajectory of the the car that allowed yeah. all of them to survive because the the Tesla cars like honestly from from stuff that I've seen about them they honestly look like they're made of plastic like all components <laughs> of the car look like they're made of plastic and not right. good plastic like cheap plastic um and and maybe they're great cars and you know whatever it just man so so you have this crazy idea to wipe out your entire family for some crazy reason and all of them survive. Holy fuck. You you just guaranteed and you. Yeah, you just guaranteed you are never getting a Christmas card from them ever again. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. Like like I I couldn't even imagine that they would they would even come see him in prison. It's like, dude, it's like you you drove us off a fucking cliff. It's like, why the fuck are we going to come see you? Yeah, that, see, and there's there's a whole other thing there. Like, you know, uh, so in one fell swoop, he guaranteed a divorce. Uh, he guaranteed <laughs> that he will never, ever uh, see his kids again. No. Um, 
because, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, maybe they're incredibly forgiving people, but uh, I would have a hard time going back to see the dude that yeeted me off of a cliff in a car, you know what I mean? And didn't give me the option as to get out before her at hand or not. I would I would have some definite freaking residual uh, <laughs> I don't like you-isms for that individual, so. Yeah, that's just... Yeah. How, how do you how yeah, do you that, fuck fuck up, you, Dad? Like how do you fuck up driving off a cliff? I mean, it's easy. You press the gas and you hang on tight. That's all you gotta do. Like you don't even have to hang on tight. You just gotta press the gas. And and just fucking go as hard as you can. How the how do you fuck that up? And and it sounds like I wanted him to kill his entire family. I, I don't. And I'm I'm happy that they're alive, but uh, <laughs> I, I can't wrap my head around it. That's that's so fucking crazy. I'm I'm with you. Uh and that takes a lot of resolve, like the to to go through with that, right? So mm-hmm. which is really hard for me to comprehend because I mean your your entire legacy is in is in this vehicle with you, right? Um and, and like and I, I can I can't understand it, but I I can Put, at least wrap my hand around the the thought of you know uh, losing my family all together at the same time, mm-hmm. but not by choice, you know. And that's like, you know, that that's one of my like like fears, right? Is uh, a natural disaster that occurs somewhere in the vicinity of my family or a family member where I'm, when I'm not there, right? Um, and you lose due to a you know something like that, you know. And if mm-hmm. if a if a meteor's coming. Where do I want to be? Oh, I want to be sitting around on the couch with all of them wrapped around me so we all go together. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and, and that sounds super morbid and super dark, but like, that's, that, that, you know, but I'm not choosing to bring the meteor, right? right. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm not driving the meteor here to us. Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so obviously there's some really fucked up stuff in this guy's head. Or, now here's another thought. The investigation may come to find that... He was using the autopilot feature, oh, and there was a malfunction, and the car yeeted all of them instead of him eating all of them with the car. Maybe that's what he thought after he went over the edge, like, hey, like, and you know how, like, stuff goes in slow motion when you know it's going bad? So maybe this whole thing starts going in slow motion as he goes off the edge, and he's, you know, white-knuckling the steering wheel going, you know what? This was probably a bad idea. Maybe, maybe. If if I survived this, I should definitely blame it on the the autopilot bullshit or whatever that is. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Slam, you know, all that happens. And it's I mean I I can't fucking wrap my like even when it's not I mean, you know, anytime a family, you know, somebody in the family kills the rest of the family is unbelievably tragic. Unbelievably tragic. And and I I can't wrap my mind around those type of situations at all. Me neither. So like the fact that you that you made a conscious choice to drive off a cliff with your entire family. Yeah. Whew. That's, man, that's, that's fucked. That is fucked. That, like, plain super and fucked. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's and if crazy. they didn't know. Yeah. Like, I mean, now, now if he's like, if he, 
if he put them into the car by gunpoint, right? Oh yeah. Doesn't but make if it it's just a, hey, we're going for a Sunday drive, you know? Okay. <laughs> and then they do a Dukes of Hazard move off the freaking, you know what I mean? Yeah. Here we go, Bo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. But you know, it's funny when you were talking just a minute ago about like, you know, the thoughts going through his mind. Oh, you know what? I could blame the freaking autopilot if this doesn't work. You know what? I <laughs> in my head, you know, I see a a Deadpool monologue happening. And and we can laugh and joke about this because they all survived, right? Right. Obviously, we wouldn't be joking if there was, you know, I mean, the tragedy this guy tried to kill his family, but like, you know, uh, that's going to be tragic for him, you know, when he goes to prison. But oh yeah, it, so, <laughs> but you can kind of see like you can kind of see like the Deadpool monologue happening, you know, because you know, like everything's in slow motion, like you know. <laughs> I bet you wondered how I got here today. <laughs> well, let me tell you, you know, <laughs> there's like, <laughs> but anyway, I doubt it. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, dickhead and a Tesla tries to kill his family. Tesla does not allow that to happen. Uh, <laughs> allegedly, alleged, right. allegedly, we don't know yeah. investigation to follow. So that's my, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking into it. Josh, over to you. All right. I have another Guinness world record for you now. This, has this nothing. is a fucking kumquat again. I'm going to throw something at you. Okay, first off, it was a gourd that was misunderstood to be a pumpkin. <laughs> a pickle. Oh. No? No. no. I, I don't know. Anyway. The pickle was the mascot. That's a totally different thing. Huh. All right, so. Why is it with you and vegetables? Like, what? I don't understand. It just, whatever speaks to me. I mean. Okay. I Sorry. mean, I don't like Carry veggies on. much, so I mean. <clears throat> so, apparently... There is a uh, a location that has built the world's quietest room. So much to the point where they have gotten a world record. So, um, to give you some clarification, the noise level in this room is a negative 20.35 dBA. Okay? Now, um, calm breathing on the same level of measurement is at 10 db and then the average threshold uh, for human hearing is at zero okay this room once you are in and you are closed in it's deafening how quiet it is and the people who have actually gone into this room have said and to quote you can hear your body. One of the people in it said that they turned their neck and they heard everything in their neck functioning to turn their head. You can hear your bones move inside your body. That's not anything special. That happens literally oh, every morning no. when I drag my ass out of bed. There's cracking and popping okay. and motion and all kinds of stuff. That's not special. Okay, that's that's because you're ancient and it's just really loud. Okay, and and then you're a dickhead and you're not very friendly. So, but still, that's that's circumstantial though. So think about any other time in the day where you're not hearing all these terrible noises, which, in all fairness, I hear all those noises when I get out of bed, too. So it's okay. So you you are never consciously able to hear that just because the just general noise. Like, there are times where I've been home where the dogs are asleep, kids are gone, wife is at work, you know, where there is literally no noise. 
there is still noise. There is something that is getting my attention somewhere. In this room, there is none of that. It is so quiet that the sound of yourself breathing is deafening. It's too loud. How did they make it so quiet? And then how... Like, what's the construction? All right, so... And I I just had that. So this chamber is made of six layers of steel and concrete. And then they... And I'm looking at an image of inside the room, and it looks like... Um, essentially like, you know, uh, sound absorbers that people usually have in studios. And clearly I do not have that in my studio, but, um, they look like they're about two feet long and they're everywhere. Absolutely everywhere in this room. And then, you know, there's carpet on the floor. So very much it, it's meant to absorb any sound that's in the room. And because of how thick the walls are, it's stopping from any sound getting in. So was this designed for, like, a blast shelter? And it just happened to be super quiet? Or was did they, like, build it with the, the intent of trying to get the record for Quietest Room? Um, so from... <clears throat> so as I'm going through this... Um, this particular article, um, it says that this chamber is is used. Uh, it's useful for, and it's also used for testing audio equipment. So essentially, taking out any other potential noise issues to make sure that whatever equipment you're testing is like one hundred percent legit. This is what it's used for. But then it's it's very much become like a a tourist attraction because it is so quiet and. People are just, you know, being dumbfounded by by how quiet it is. So it started as one thing, but then turns into something uh, much different. But yeah. so That's super, badass, man. Super quiet room. A super quiet room. Now, what was the record before this? And why was there a Guinness Book of World Records record for a quiet room? Well, I that I don't know. And maybe I will look into that on my own time. Um, I doubt it. But and that's okay. But see, okay, so my my assumption is that there wasn't one. And, like, when you go to, like, either uh, beat a record or submit a record, they will say, okay, um, the quietest place on Earth measures noise level at this. If you are going to claim that your room is quieter, it has to be below this threshold. And the fact that they are, you know, minus 20 above, you know, the level of normal breathing. And, I mean, how often do you notice your, like, hear yourself breathe? You don't. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean. Or consciously. Anytime I go upstairs or eat. Um, But, like, uh so my question is, is with decibels though, right? So no noise is zero. So how can there be less than no noise? Isn't less than no noise noise? And it's just on the other side of the wavelength? That's a great question. 
I may look like an evil scientist right now, but I'm I'm definitely not one. I need I need an adult. I need some <laughs> somebody who knows fucking noise. Fucking I I need an audio engineer. We need a scientist. We, we need somebody. I need a scientist. I'm going to find someone and answer oh, yeah. this question. But that that so yeah, because when you said that negative number, I'm like, how the fuck can they have negative decibels? Because negative decibels, you're just on the other side of zero, so it would just be noise in a different frequency. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe that frequency is at a range that the human sound receptors can't pick up. So there's noises going on around us we can't hear? Yeah. Mm. Dude, come on. That's totally a thing. Yeah, I know. And like that's subliminal why, like, messaging little, like, mis- bullshit like that. Well, yeah, those like the mosquito buzzing like things on your phone. Wait, like the no, yeah. So there's like ringtones that you can get that are like super, super ultra high frequencies, and generally they only like people with like amazing hearing or young people, right? Because uh, uh-huh. it's like a frequency that you can only hear like when you're younger, and then it fades over time unless you have like super ears. Uh, kids were using that to cheat on their phones for a while. Yeah, so like or or you know because it would be a ringtone that the, that their teacher couldn't hear. Right. You know, and so there was a, an issue with that. But like every time, like it's like, mm. if you can hear this sound, you're probably 15 years old. And I, for some reason, I've always had really great hearing. I can't see for shit. And, you know, my hearing is selective, meaning I only hear what the people I want to hear. Like, but, um, <laughs> but when I'm like in that little box and I'm freaking listening to shit, like, you know, uh, I can hear those frequencies. And I've always been able to hear those ringtones. My kids tried that shit. And they like, and I was like, we were sitting on the couch and all of a sudden it was that this weird buzz. And I'm like, what the hell was that noise? And I think it was Morgan or Kenzie was like, you could hear that. You're not supposed to be able to hear that. I'm like, I did so shut it off. It's annoying. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, yeah. That'd be a yeah. good question. So listeners, uh, if you know, audiology science or something, please tell us what the, uh, what negative decibels does. Uh, if zero is no noise at all, I'd be interested to know. Meanwhile, Dr. Josh is googling. Well, I'm just I'm just kind of seeing if there's any other information that I I missed as I'm I'm looking over it again, but I don't think I am. So anyway, all right, good story, man. I like yeah. it. Right okay, on. well, we are done here at the news desk for this week. We will see you over at the bar for Hey Bartender. All right, folks, we are at that part of the night where I just get super happy because we're talking about stuff that we're drinking, and I like drinking stuff. Um, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, no. Eh, I'm a drunk. Alcoholics go to meetings. Um, so the uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm just kidding. Please drink responsibly. <clears throat> yeah, somebody's going to jump on there and be like, oh, my God, you're so insensitive. And go fuck off. Yeah, All right, so. Tonight, Joshua and I are actually drinking, uh, well, we're drinking the same brand. Our our versions are just slightly different from each other, but uh, we are sipping tonight on some Blanton's Single Barrel Bourbon. Now, Josh has the uh, the regular mix, 
which uh, comes in. It's uh, it's made pretty regularly. Uh, it is super allocated. Proof is ninety three. It's kind of hard to get. Comes out of the uh, Buffalo Trace Distillery, just like everything you can't buy on the shelves. And uh, uh, it is undis- uh, excuse me. It is ongoing. Uh, there is no age statement, so we're not really sure how old it is exactly. The mash bill is undisclosed, but Buffalo Trace only uses a couple of different ones, so we can kind of guess what it might be. And knowing that it's a bourbon, it's going to use one of their two bourbon mash bills, probably. But uh, let's talk about Albert Blanton for just a quick sec, because uh, he did some crazy stuff for bourbon. Uh, now, the Buffalo Trace Distillery is located where the George Stagg Distillery was. Obviously, George Stagg is now a part of the BTAC collection. Uh, comes out once a year. And uh, and if you remember, we talked about that, I think it was last, uh, last season, because the George Stagg cut for that year wasn't up to quality, so there was no uh, George Stagg in BTAC for 2021. Duh. There was a, a, a disturbance in the force. But anyway, uh, so Elmer T. Lee worked under uh, Albert Blanton at this distillery. Uh, Colonel Albert Blanton, right? Well, I don't think it was a military thing. It was a Kentucky Colonel thing, which is a whole other story we're not going to talk about right now, right? But it was Elmer T. who kind of got everything together, uh, named the this bourbon after uh, Albert Blanton, and uh, is single-handedly responsible for saving bourbon in America as we know it because there was a, a very dark period for bourbon in the the late 60s to early 80s where nobody wanted to drink brown liquor the proof was off the quality was not great uh, everybody was drinking the new hot shit which was clear liquors vodka gins that kind of thing uh, bourbon got uh, labeled as the old man's drink, and so they were having a really hard time selling it. So what Elmer T. did uh, is, Elmer T. Lee, uh, he went through and said, you know what, I know where all the hot spots are, I know where all the good shit is, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab this barrel of really good whiskey, I'm going to bottle it, and I'm going to sell it. And here you have, now, the single barrel program. And what this did by going in and selecting the good stuff and putting the good stuff out on the shelves um, opens the door for all kinds of new and amazing things to come out in the world of bourbon. And now we have single barrel selections for literally everything. If you are a distillery and you're open for more than 36 hours, chances are somebody has a single barrel selection of your stuff. And that sounds very critical. It's not. I don't intend it to be. But um, but it, that's a thing, and we can thank uh, Colonel uh, Albert Blanton for the recipe to this wonderful stuff, and uh, Elmer T. Lee for kind of putting together the single barrel program, which put uh, put a bunch of stuff out there. And there's there's some really great stuff. And and what single barrel means, right? Uh, there's a lot of regular releases that are single barrel bourbons, right? It means that that particular bottle came from one particular barrel so there's no batching there's no blending there's no mixing there's no nothing they took this barrel they dumped it they bottled it and then those bottles which josh what is your bottle number uh let's see here are your excuse me go go your use your barrel number first all right should be uh right after the date okay so uh barrel number 142 
Uh, Rick House number fifty six. Mm. Um, oh, uh, warehouse this number. Red... What's the warehouse letter? Sorry. Oh, uh, letter H. Yep. And so the Rick uh, number. Okay. Hang on. All right. So barrel is one forty two. Okay. Uh, the uh, stored in warehouse H. Yep. Rick number fifty six. Okay. And this is registered bottle number one seventy seven. All right. So, uh, what's your date? And this is your uh, dump date. This isn't the the barrel date. This was the date it was dumped from the barrel into the bottle. Uh, six twenty eight twenty one. All right. So mine is May nineteenth of twenty one. Barrel number eighteen. Rick House eight. Rick number twenty three. Uh, and then my individual bottle number is 34. Now, I'm drinking Black Label, which is something that's only sold in Japan, uh, in the Japanese markets, and it's 80 proof. Josh's is the typical 93 proof. Um, and, uh, and so a little bit different, but the same. The, the thing is the same, pretty much. The, the recipe is the same, it's just mine's been uh, washed down a little bit. But I will tell you this. Uh, the moment I opened up this bottle and I tasted it, I was pissed. Because I don't buy... I, I chased Blanton's for years, and it took me... I think it took me seven years to get all of the horses because I wouldn't go onto eBay and just buy the horses, right? Um, and for those of you who don't know, Blanton's, the topper of their bottle has a horse on it in a various states of running. So it's a racehorse, right? And if you look down to the bottom left of the horse, right, the horse is running from your left to your right. If you look down to the bottom left of the horse, you'll see a letter. And what they do is they have the, the letters Blanton's. Right, so you get the B one, you get the L, the A, the N. Right, there's two N's, I think, and uh, mm-hmm. and what that is is that is the the seven stages. Eight. Sorry, I had to count my fingers. Uh, there's eight stages of a horse race. So the first one is the gate, the second one is the start, and then you've got them in a, in a various states of gallop, and then the last one, the S at the end, is where the jockey's like got his hand up in victory. <clears throat> So it, you pursue Blanton's and you get all the toppers, the different toppers, right? It took me seven years to get all of them, uh, a bunch. And I, I don't buy into the hype, so I, and I, I refuse to buy bottles that were above MSRP. So I would have to get lucky, find somewhere in the country that had them, was selling them at freaking retail, and then had a letter that I needed. So that's why it took me so long. I just refused to, to go crazy. Um, so... <clears throat> Uh, but I will say this about my bottle. the It's an 80 proof. So I was like, all right, cool. Um, I had an opportunity to get this bottle. I got it just for uh, a good conversation piece. I finally opened it up to test it, to like taste it. At 80 proof, I wasn't didn't have a lot of expectations. And I was absolutely furious when it was the best 80 proof whiskey I have ever tasted in my life. Wow. And... There's a lot of Irish whiskeys that are fucking phenomenal at 80 proof. And there's a lot of scotches that are fucking phenomenal at 80 proof. Um, and this is this is just good. This mm. is good. Ugh, I was pissed. It's like, damn it. Why's so it gotta I, be why's it gotta be good? I I never realized this about the topper until, you know, once you were talking about it. I'm just kind of looking over the bottle and I looked at uh my my topper. I have uh I have an A for mine, so that's like mid-race. And so I'm looking at it, and I'm always intrigued by by bottles that have 
some kind of a topper gimmick. Like you have a caribou that's got the the caribou on top. You have yep. um there's one that's a there's a bald eagle head on top, you know, stuff like that. Those guys are scandalous. Yeah. We'll talk about them later. So I never genuinely realized. So like um you have your bottle in front of you, yeah? Yes. What what letter is it? It's a T. Okay. Can uh, can you hold it up so I can see it real quick? Sure. I just I want to see it if I'm seeing the same thing. Okay. So so go ahead and, and look at your topper real quick. Okay. Do you notice anything odd? Reins are in the left hand, whip is in the right hand. No, not that. Look at the size of the jockey compared to the size of the horse. Uh that's there not- is no way that is anatomically correct. Unless he's racing with a draft horse. No, nah, no, nah, you got nothing to say. Dude, the the dude is this big and the horse is this big. Okay. Bro. There's no way that's, that's I've legit. jumped in to the Belmont stakes, the Traverse stakes, the freaking like and we've been in the winner's circle a lot. These jockeys are literally four feet tall and weigh 87 pounds. They have to stand on a scale with their saddle at the end of the race after they've won to verify that there was no, like, cheating. And, like, I'm telling you, these dudes are itty-bitty, and these horses are fucking monsters. They're not Uh. like, you know, they're not like the quarter horse that we had growing up as kids. (laughs) These, These are fucking machines of muscle and bone that are just unbelievable and they're huge and they're fast right they're not Clydesdales right they're not Dick and Don from Cedar Bend Farms but dude (laughs) they they big they big horses and these are little dudes so so the proportions don't look that off to me oh yeah see like I was looking at it and I was just like I understand maybe this is just supposed to be like a just a a visual thing and it's not supposed to be you know exact or anything I'm like man a little dude on there is tiny compared to that fucking horse, and it's I. I thought I was onto something, but you know, fuck me too. So, <laughs> so you're right. It does look like a very big horse and a little person, but in reality, they are very little people and they are very big horses. So what I what I what's kind of weird about mine is my horse looks like his leg, his front right leg is bending backwards, and uh, oh. and uh, my my horse is thick. <laughs> he got he got some junk in the trunk. That horse got big old booty, so that's a little disproportionate. And the tail, <laughs> like anyway. Um, so yeah, so there. I mean, obviously, we can sit here and nitpick, but the fact that they casted uh, a dude on a horse in a in a state of movement uh, yeah. on top with a little letter next to it. So, well, and the uh, fact that that they have a different letter for different tops, but the fact they have different tops, they could literally have did have just done one top. All across the board and not even done it, but they, I think they had the the cleverness to be like, hey, we could make this be something people go after. If we did different toppers at different stages of this race and had different letters, people are going to want to have it spell out blends. Guar- guaranteed, you know, eight bottles will be sold just for that. Not, you know, on top of, you know, whatever people are buying to drink. And it's like, who whoever was on top of that shit was, was thinking. They were like, this could be good. This could be <laughs> really good. And 
And they fucking ran with it. And I have yet to see a Blanton's in the wild. I have, I've oh, really? never seen one in a store. Never. Um, there is a corner store. Actually, no, there's two corner stores um, I've been meaning to go to because uh, a guy I work with says that one of them that he's gone to, he has seen Blanton's in the store. And I drive by this store every single day on my way to work. And then there's another store that I actually used to, like, live right next to. And I lived next to it for, like, seven years. And, of course, during that time, I wasn't drinking whiskey, at least not, like, to drink whiskey. I, I bought whiskey to, right. like, throw ginger ale into it. Um, they have it every now and again. And it's like, well, shit. And so now I'm like, okay, I, I need to go to these stores to see if I can at least see it. Because... I don't believe they exist because anytime I've seen it, it's been on somebody's shelf. I've never seen it in a store because I, I don't think they exist. But it's it's one of those that if if I find it and it's reasonably priced, I, I'll get it. But some of the stuff I see, especially at the smaller shops, is so grossly overpriced. So and, and and my thing is like I understand you're trying to make more money and if you know that these things are super allocated and people are hunting for it. You know, you want to make, you want to make money. I totally get that. Totally get it. But at the same time, it's like, it just, it seems kind of fucked to, to, to throw it way up there, you know, above the the MSRP. And it's like, come on. It's like people want that. And I got talking with somebody recently about, about MSRP for different types of whiskey. And I'm like, I understand they have a, a price point that they have to sell it at, but at the same time, I don't know. It's 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 really weird when, especially when it comes to something as simple as whiskey. Why why does it have to be allocated? <laughs> what what is it about that people are so fucking crazy to to get their hands on? Um, Blanton's being one of them, and. And it's and it's and honestly, I think it's the hype. There, that's it. There's so much hype around particular whiskey that people are like, oh, I have to have it. But then it just sits on their shelf. Exactly, like, and that's the uh, thing. So uh, status, right? It, it's become a, a status game. Like, right. and and there are there are a number of accounts um, on on Instagram. Uh, where you can go and see these amazing bottles of whiskey on these amazing display shelves. And every single fucking one of them are closed and sealed. Like, do you, do you even like whiskey, bro? Like what, why do you have that? Yeah. You know, and, and are, are you going to drink it? You know? And, and there's dudes like, well, okay, these are my display bottles. My sippers are down here. You have more than one, right? You piece of shit. You're the reason why none of us can have them, right? And there's, there's a whole big argument with the the allocations and stuff. Why why are things allocated, right? Mm-hmm. Now, um, there was a a time where demand was so high that so many companies were having to dip into aging stocks, and for a while there, you saw the age statement on Elijah Craig go away. Elijah Craig has always been a twelve year. And then for about four years, maybe five, uh, even uh, Knob Creek was another one. Knob Creek, the age statement on them went away because they just couldn't keep up. And so they had to dig into the older stuff or, or grab younger stuff. 
You know what I mean? And so now they're using younger bourbon, so they got to drop the age statement. Now, both of those have returned to pre-fucking crazy, uh, and they've put their age statements back on their bottles. Um, And so, which which is wonderful, but... What hasn't changed is is the price for freaking weird shit and and allocations. Sometimes you got to look at the distillery for allocations because some stuff there people are calling it allocated. It's not allocated. It's just highly sought after, and so places are a little bit protective. Like the last uh, Elijah Craig Barrel Proof, I happened to see a box behind the counter. Right, I, I was at an angle at which I could see the box, and then so I grab a bottle of something else to buy. When I get up to the counter, I'm like, "Man, do you guys any of that have any of that new Elijah Craig Barrel Proof?" And the guy's like, "Uh, hang on a sec." And like, then he walks around, talks to somebody, and comes back, and he's like, "Yeah, we do." Here, reaches into the box that I saw behind <laughs> the counter, pulls it out, and puts. It, okay, cool. Right, you know what I mean. So, uh, it's just it's sought after, and and right. people, you know, some stores that want to try to be fair about it, what they'll do is they'll hang on to those bottles and then they'll raffle them off occasionally throughout the year, you right. know. Which, it, as long as you don't have to pay to join the raffle, right? Yeah, that's where I get that's it, it, it's the raffles you got to pay for from a store. Now, if somebody individually is doing it, that's whatever, or a charity or whatever, like that. I have no beef with that, but. Stores making you pay for the opportunity to pay more money to buy a bottle at MSRP or slightly above, you can fuck all the way off. Those those entries should be free. And that's, man, I freaking, I can't talk well enough, and I think I've said their name two or three times now, but uh, the Burlington Wine and Spirits guys in Massachusetts mm-hmm. really did, I, I, I don't know, they, they, are the, they are who I measure like liquor stores against. Nice. Um, from customer service to uh, transparency to uh, how they did their they do big Christmas raffles and all this stuff. So, uh, so allocations, right? So allocations come from the distillery. The distillery says we're only releasing these many bottles this many times a year to this state, right? Mm. And that's horseshit. It sucks. That system is stupid as fuck. You know, give us the fucking whiskey, get it out there. Mm-hmm. And by allocating it, what they kind of do too, oh, hey, like we're only dropping freaking 57 bottles this year, right? right? And if they, they announce that shit, now guess what? Every stupid fucking, you know, bourbon asshole, right? And there's a lot of really amazing people in bourbon. There are. There are more great people than there are not. But it's those right. people that are not that really fuck it up for everybody else. Um, and, and those folks, like, you know, that now, it's, now it's a thing. And uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, we we're gonna go like for an hour, and we're not even. Right. Stuff, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop. Well, I'm gonna sip this lovely whiskey, and uh, and you can talk for a while. No, and and we've had Blands on on the show before, and I'm pretty sure we got into uh, a similar discussion about how allocation becomes ridiculous, and and I think right now, out of everything on my bar, I have one bottle that I have not opened. And that is my uh, maker's mark, my deep uh, dip. Um, that's the only thing I haven't opened yet, and mostly because I'm I'm saving that for the right moment. <laughs> I haven't decided what that moment is, but I I feel like that will present itself when when it is time. And and when that time comes, fuck, I'll open it. I don't care because 
what's the point of, like, I get the whole status and all that other bullshit, or you could just simply say, I have this bottle of, it's like, okay, fuck off. It's like, if you're not drinking it, it's a waste of money. You, you literally are just sitting on money. And it's, and it's like, right. fuck you for that. Because it's like, no offense, it's like, I, any, any bottle of whiskey I buy, I'm going to drink it. Plain and simple. Doesn't, doesn't fucking matter what it is. Whether if it's something I'm disappointed in, guess what? It turns into a mixture. If it's something I really like, I might, you know, drink it slowly just so I don't have to rush out and get another one. It's just everything will be gone at some point just because I'm not going to sit on a bottle of whiskey for for no reason other than to say I have a bottle of this. And it's like that doesn't fucking matter. doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't at all. I'm I'm trying to find uh, where uh, I'm trying to find where where this is. Um, so Freddie Johnson is a longtime. Uh, he's he works in the hospitality department at Buffalo Trace, and the guys the guys family has been in in bourbon for years, and he is he is notorious. He's an amazing guy, and he he put out rules for sharing bourbon and those rules are are they're beautiful right um uh you know you don't pull out your good bottles for somebody that you don't like pull out your good bottles for people that you do like make sure that you have the time to sit and enjoy the bottle with the person that you like like and it's something like that and if i can find it i'll I'll put that on the the show notes as well and uh, and so you guys can see it, but they're like he's got rules about that, and uh, he he tells a story about his dad scolding him. You know, he had a bottle of like Pappy or something um, that he pulled out, and him and his dad shared a drink, and then he went and he put the topper back on. His dad looked at him and was like, "Take that off!" <laughs> like we're we're not done with this, right? You know, <laughs> um, you know it, it's not something to be saved, and that's like, and and I, I love the fact that you only have one bottle that's closed, and and for me that it should be. That's what a good bar should look like. Yeah. If you got a bar full of closed bottles, do, do you even drink whiskey? Do you like whiskey? Is any of yeah. that any good? And if you tell me, yeah, it's wonderful, why do you tell me? Why is it? How do you know it's wonderful? I'm looking at sealed bottles. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like is is that delicious? Yes, it's delicious. How do you know? Right. Oh, well, this guy on the internet told me this one thing about this other thing and said that I had to have this. Ad- oh, okay, cool. So you've never even tasted. Fuck off. Yeah. That's you know? that's my thing against display bottles and drinking bottles. It's like, it's like, and to me, there's no difference. My display bottles are my drinking bottles, and then the only time they become legit display bottles is when it's empty. That's that's when a bottle becomes a display bottle, and usually I only keep bottles I really like, or like uh, a whiskey I really like. It's the only time I ever hang on to anything. If if it's if it's a good whiskey. And it's easily accessible, and I've had it more than once. I only keep one of those bottles, but after that, you know, it's like just, you know, that's the only time a bottle will become a display bottle is when it's yeah. empty. Never, I can I cannot justify buying a bottle of whiskey and never opening it. No, like me and and, it, and like even if I was one of those people to drop, you know, 
$600 on a bottle of whiskey. You better fucking believe I'm going to open that shit. It's like, I'm not going to spend that kind of money on fucking whiskey and then not try it. And not enjoy what? it. Yeah. It's like, I, I spent good money on this and I'm not going, like, I'm just going to look at it? Fuck no. Like, there's plenty of other things that I can buy for that much money that I would enjoy just looking at. Totally. Not going to be fucking whiskey for sure. Dude, I had a I had a buddy once um who who got me a uh a, a Christmas present of it was Distiller's masterpiece from Jim Beam. And he legit so I I I saw I saw it in the store and uh <laughs> and then then it was gone, right? So somebody else had gotten it. I didn't get the chance to get it. I was kind of bummed. But I had talked to him about it. I mentioned it and anyway comes to find out my uh, my well, my ex-wife had had bought the bottle for me for my birthday, and Corey had gone and bought the other bottle. And but when he gave it to me for Christmas, uh, what he did is he destroyed the box, and he like burnt the label on the bottle, and he like tore everything up. I still have the box. It looks like oh, some shit. like no, it looks like some steampunk shit, dude. Uh, it looks like a Frankenstein box. And so when I open this thing on Christmas Day, I am absolutely like beside myself because I'm thinking that my ex-wife gave him um, this box and he destroyed my box. Ugh. And and he like, you know what I mean? And yeah. come to find out like, and then I open up the box and here's this brand new unopened bottle. And I'm like, what the fuck? And he's like, well, I had to make it ugly. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, because that way, I mean, you wouldn't feel compelled to like keep it pretty and as a display thing, you would drink it. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's not a problem for me, but I really appreciate the sentiment and the work. And uh, I still right. have the box and the bottle. Nice. So I drank that bottle. Um, the other bottle that I got for my birthday, uh, I still have a good portion of that. And, but I put that bottle into Corey's box, like the Frankenstein box. And that's the nice. box that I display. So yeah. very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, shenanigans but yeah man i'm with you you yeah if it's on your shelf you better fucking drink it yeah and don't tell me it's good because you you don't know because your shit's closed yeah. right now before i make myself a liar i do have a bottle of uh, what is it king george dalmore on my on my whiskey wall that is closed yeah. however i have had that uh at a bar and it is amazing Chance Whitmore was right. It's a pretty, pretty fucking amazing scotch. But anyway, nice. do we, we need to wrap this shit up? We've been talking whiskey for a long time. I know, right? It's well, it's been a minute since we've talked this much whiskey. I know. I'm liking it. All right, you ready? All right, folks. Yeah, this is uh, this has been Hey Bartender. We've been drinking uh, Bland's Single Barrel. Josh has been drinking the the regular. I have been drinking the Black Label. And uh, if you want more information on this, just Google Bland's, and you'll get all the things you could possibly want and or need and with that let's go uh let's move on all right folks we are now uh at the time of the night where we sit down and we talk about something very specific and tonight josh and i are going to do something we don't normally do we usually let chuck and ruff uh take care of this part of the thing but tonight we are going to look over uh review uh pick apart and uh, talk about a movie now this movie is very very specific uh 
and it kind of is in Josh's wheelhouse. So he's gonna he's gonna be the the front runner here for all of the information. But um, uh, a movie, this particular movie, was uh, released September twenty second of twenty seventeen in the United States. Directors uh, Dorota Kobela and Hugh Welchman. Uh, this movie has won all kinds of awards to include the European Film Award uh, for Best Animated Feature, and it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature Film, uh, a BAFTA, and, uh, and, and more. Budget was $5.5 million, which is kind of crazy when we get into the and we get to talking about it. At the box office, it cleared $42.1 million. Now, what's crazy about this movie is that this is an animated movie, but it's not animated like you think. If you're thinking Disney, if you're thinking cartoons or Pixar, you're wrong. This movie was animated completely by over 100 artists using paintbrushes, canvases, and paint. The movie's called Loving Vincent, and it is the story of Vincent Van Gogh, uh, which is uh, a very uh, a special a special thing for Josh, and uh, and I have recently seen my very first ever Van Goghs in person uh, on a recent trip to New York with Christina, and uh, so we're gonna pick apart this movie. We're gonna talk about the movie. We're gonna talk about Van Gogh, and I am I'm super excited. I rewatched it today, and yeah, that's a good fucking movie, dude. Yeah, and the one of the best things is um, that it was even quoted to. Uh, um, that somebody in the production had said, uh, definitely without a doubt, talking about the creators of the movie, they had found the slowest form of filmmaking ever devised in 120 years. <laughs> so <laughs> one, one of the best things about this movie, and the first time I saw it, the movie was actually visually hard to watch, only because every frame of the movie was a different painting done in the style of Van Gogh. Yes. Every frame. So if you have six, I mean, I'm throwing out numbers here. I don't have exact numbers, but I'm throwing out numbers. If you have, let's say 10 frames a second, that means for one second of movie, you have 10 individual paintings. How, how fucking crazy is that? Like, let's just, it's it's almost like um, claymation, where yes. you move a little bit, take a picture, move a little bit, but it's it's hand painted. It, it it's just art, essentially living art in front of you, and you get to at least uh, when I watched it again, you forgot you were watching paintings. Yes, and it was just a movie, and every now and again. How how it would look, you could see heavy brush strokes, and you could see like globs of paint, and you're like, "Oh shit, these these are actual paintings in front of me." Yes, I'm not watching. I'm not watching a movie. I'm watching essentially living art. It ah, it's brilliant. So the fact that somebody was like, "Hey, let's make," because they could have easily just made this as a normal normal movie. And and honestly, I I probably still would have enjoyed it very much. So the fact that they took it one step more and did it in the style of Van Gogh paintings was 
incredible. And one of the best things about this movie is that periodically throughout the movie, they have their frame set up to capture a legit Van Gogh painting. Yes. Now, if you're familiar with Van Gogh's paintings, you can you can pick these out as you are watching it. And, um, of course, my wife and I watched it, and I was like, oh, that's a Van Gogh right there. Oh, hey, there's another one. And she'd be like, dude, just watch the movie. And it's like, okay, sorry, sorry. You know, and it's uh, it's incredible. Incredible movie. Even if you don't know it's a Van Gogh, you're going to see a scene or a picture or a capture. Woman at the piano, mm-hmm. right? That when when the inspector walks by, right? You're, you, you don't know it's a Van Gogh, but you know you've seen that somewhere before. And, oh, yeah. and those, those are the... The cool thing, the first time I watched this, and, and I watched it on your recommendation, I, I think we talked about this on a different podcast a long, long time ago, um, and, uh, you know, there were scenes that I recognized in from art class, from just, you know, you just see this stuff everywhere, because he was that big of a deal. Van Gogh yeah. was that big of a deal, and, and his style was very unique. Uh, one of the cool things there's there's a, a a fantastic behind the scenes documentary about this movie, where it, so if you took like a a nine by eleven sheet of paper that represented like one painting f- like per frame, right? So mm-hmm. one frame, and you laid out all of the frames side by side, up and down. You the frames would cover the entire island of Manhattan. Oh, Jesus so the, so the frames it took to make this movie would cover the entire island of Manhattan. Uh, and, and those are like 9 by 11s We're not talking about like giant right. paintings, right? Those are, those are individual sheets of paper. Um, That's crazy. And, and that, is, that is crazy. And just the amount of time and work that it went into, you know, painting this. And now you've got to get together artists who uh, are able to, to paint in a similar style uh, of so that, you know, scene one and scene two don't look like two different artists. They look like the same artist. It's the well, same scene. And, you not, know, not even scenes. You're talking frame one has to be similar to frame 25. Because if they aren't, there's going to be a, a blip of a second that just feels so unbelievably fucked as you're going through your progression. You're like, whoa, wait, what was that? Go back. And it's, so, so not only do do the individual frames have to be similar, but scenes have to be similar, you know, and and they have to build off each other. Um, one of one of the best things they did is that the the story progression for the the movie part is they would do these, um, not essentially their flashbacks into particular times of Van Gogh's life where all color would be gone. It's in black and white, and it's. It's cleaner. Pencil. The, the painting. Yes. It's not painting. Um, it's pencil, right? So, or charcoal or I, something. That that part I don't know. I it, that would make sense if that was the case. Um, but it it definitely was different, and it and it had a different essence to it. And so every now and again, you would get to where you're bouncing back from from memory to present, memory to present, and it just. Again, the first time I remember um, of watching this movie, it was visually hard to watch because there's a part of you that wants to 
to watch it as a movie like you normally would watch any other movie. Oh, empty bottle. That's very sad. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Um, you, I okay. At least I would have times of wanting to watch it just as a movie, but then I would keep getting caught up in recognizing that I see brush strokes. I see that yes. it is a painting, and and it kept taking me out of the movie. Um, so when I watched it again, that wasn't as much of a problem. I I appreciated seeing the brush strokes and the fact that, but then I was still able to maintain the storyline of the movie itself, which let's, let's jump into that because they use historical facts about um, the end of Van Gogh's life. Um, but then they add in this odd thought of, of a plot of maybe he was accidentally shot. It wasn't by Renee. To kill himself. Yes. That fucker. And so, so the fact that they they bring in this thing and to the point where there's even some historical thoughts to that potentially having some merit, even though they have this as a fictional story, that there are elements of it that make sense. Because he could very easily say, yes, he shot himself, but nobody was around. Nobody actually saw him shoot himself. And did he was did he shoot himself in the stomach? Is that accurate or is that um, movie? It's stomach, chest area, so torso. Definitely okay. shot himself in the torso. Um, so it's it, it definitely plays on uh, a weird like conspiracy theorist plot. Yes. Like he he was murdered or it was it was an accident and you know the gun was never found and you know stuff like that and you know it's again makes for amazing movie watching yeah but then it 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 makes you stop and you go okay you know yes this is fictional but what if there is some accuracy to it what uh, if absolutely and and you know like van gogh and history and all that stuff way better with him than i do um, and so, so I had the, the advantage of, you know, if we were watching a military movie, like an old war movie, you know, <laughs> the roles would be reversed here. Um, yeah. so the second time I really just kind of focused on the story and the dialogue and the character interaction and all that stuff as, as a movie, right. Cause I, I was no longer kind of like yourself overtaken by the fact that this was painted by hand. Like this entire piece was painted by hand, right? So I was able to kind of look past that and listen to that. And and I did some digging on the cast. And the cast itself was pretty amazing that they put together for this. Yeah. Uh, so some 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 relatively big names. Uh Chris O'Dowd, you'll he's a lovely Irish actor. I fucking love that dude. I love that dude. He's awesome. If it, what's crazy, so you see him in this role, right, where he's very serious and it, it like it presents yeah. as a really strong character. Um, you then you watch him in like Bridesmaids, where he's the the silly cop. You know what I mean? <laughs> and Brides, so, dude, dude, you have to take it a step further. He's an IT crowd. Okay, I don't that think is, I've seen that. Oh, um, uh, something out of England. Uh, he and his buddy uh, Maurice are are the IT department to a big Fortune 500 company. It is fucking hilarious, and so seeing him in anything that isn't a obvious comedy role 
is amazing because that dude, even though he's hilarious, he has a range. Yes. Of of just like fucking acting chops that just make me happy. And the funniest thing is uh the first time I watched it, I saw him and I recognized his voice first. I'm like, man, I know that. I'm like, who is that guy? And it took me a minute because he's got this big old beard. And you can't really see his face, and it's painted, so it's a little distorted. But as soon as I realized it was him, I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, this just got better. And he, he even though his role was was simple, it was impactful to the movie. Very and much it, so. It def- and it definitely gave it something. It was, it was really good. Oh, yeah. So let's let's kind of go let's let's talk about that for just a sec. So uh the the premise of the story is a, a young Armand Rulin has a letter that he's trying to deliver from Van Gogh to his brother and it's uh, obviously his brother has passed and now he's got to find somebody else to give this letter to and he's kind of retracing Van Gogh's steps to find somebody worthy of the letter. And in this journey to deliver this letter, he is now a, like deep into uh, talking to the people in in the little town in France, uh, which I have forgotten the name, um, but the Gachet family, right? So you have the doctor who's uh, kind of shady character, right? Um, so Armand is played by Douglas Booth, uh, a, a young uh, actor, not not too, too well known. Vincent Van Gogh is played by Robert uh, Gulichek. Uh, now, Margaret Gachet, which is the hinted love interest of, uh, of yep. Van Gogh, right, uh, is played Our, by uh, Sarais. Oh, geez, I don't even know how to say her first name, Ronan. Now, she's been nominated for Best Actress roles numerous times in a bunch of different what, movies. Wasn't she in, in – oh, shit, I'm probably going to get hated on. But wasn't she in Game of Thrones? I've Correct. never seen it. So, but yeah. I, so she was in Game of Thrones, but she was also like yeah. she was nominated for movies, like best actress oh, like shit. roles in movies, um, right? Uh, through the Academy. Uh, Aiden Turner is the boatman. Uh, mm-hmm. He's been in a lot of the the Hobbit movies, right? Um, yep. Jerome Flynn plays Doctor Paul Gachet, and I think one of my mm-hmm. favorite roles of Jerome Flynn, ooh, Flynn. That's ends, not M's. Is in um, John Wick, so he is in. He's in the second one where uh, John, you know, Halle Berry, where he actually he shoots Halle Berry's dog, oh. and and then what? Halle Berry's like, dog. Oh, which starts this incredible scene of unbelievable violence, and then she's like, "He shot my dog," and that like one of the best moments in the entire John Wick series is like Halle Berry looks at him and goes, "He shot my dog." <laughs> to which Keanu Reeves, like John Wick, looks at her and kind of closes his eyes and nods and goes, I know, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the whole thing started because they shot his dog. But anyway, um, uh, uh, Helen McCorry, <laughs> uh, she was in uh, she was in all of the Harry Potter movies. She, she's been in. No, not all of them. She was in like uh, two five of them. them. Bullshit. She was. OK, there's let's no do, way she was in. Let's, five. Anyway, let's she, do some math. She, OK. All right, first off, don't don't minimize her role to just Harry Potter, okay? She was in Peaky Blinders. She has an amazing stage career. This woman had fucking acting chops out of her butt. I mean, unbelievable actress. And and the fact that even, like, uh, this is another thing about this movie that 
just totally like it puts a smile on my face is they have these big name actors with with honestly what what ends up being these very small roles. If yes. if you look at all the roles individually, they're they're understandably small because it's not about the actors. It's not about the it's partly about the story they're wanting to tell, but it's how they're telling the story. They're they're telling the story through living art. So so the actors and their performance honestly almost takes a back seat. And so um for Helen's character, you know, you have this woman who has an amazing stage presence where even in her small role, and she was like the housekeeper to to, to the the doctor. That's a she, she had a huge role, but it still is still back. But her ability makes her a force to be reckoned with in such a small role. She's it, so evil. She is, and she's. And, and, but the best part is like when he's talking to her when she's on her way to church, and she's just being a bitch, and she's like, oh. I gotta go to church now, and you'll see you later. (laughs) It is the Lord's time, right? It is ah, unbelievable. Again, just they have all these names, and if if you look at at least other than um, uh, Armand, or is it Armand or Armand, Uh, the the main guy, the Armand ruling, yeah. Uh, played by Armand Rulin, yes, I mean, he, yes, yeah. So he has he has the most screen time out of anybody because uh, he's like always in the frame because you know he's the one doing the investigating. So you have all these other people who kind of come in and out. Who other than Vincent and the Doctor, everybody else are these essentially like they're important characters, but they're small side characters that you don't actually see a whole lot. And it's but each time you see them. Their presence is so huge by the acting ability, but then also how they're telling the story. The 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 painting that's done not only portrays them in a way that the acting normally would in a regular film, you have these paintings that honestly, like if you you could pause that movie at any point in time and you have a work of art. Especially when you have people talking, like um, the uh, the gal who is at um, the essentially the restaurant hotel thing that he that Armin stays at. Um, the discussions Revel? between them, yes, uh, it the the talks they have are again they're simple, they're to the point, but visually, you just get drawn into this movie. There's. There's so much that just pulls you in and it's and it's the art. And and don't get me started on the score. <laughs> it fucking I've always I've always said and I've gotten to uh, discussions with people about who are really into movies that without a score the movie would be unbelievably boring. Any movie without a score would be unbelievably boring. The Fair. score adds so much to any movie even like comedies comedies that are done well especially with a good score are made that much better this movie is no exception granted you have a lot of the work being done by the fact that it's painted and you add a good score to it just fucking shoots everything out of the water but i think 
I, I so I think for for most viewers, if there isn't like a a passion, because you you're very passionate about art, you're very passionate about Van Gogh, you have a lot of like there's there's a, an emotional connection for you there. So you're you're looking at this, but I think uh, what's important to note is that for people who are just going to go watch this movie to see a movie, right? Or, or they're going to see this as like an animated film of sorts, right? So mm-hmm. what they're not going to see is they're not going to see the brushstrokes. And what it took me the second time watching this through was to realize that the the story behind it, because like you, the first time I was kind of captivated by what I was watching, knowing that somebody hand-painted all of this stuff, right? It was unbelievable, right? Like the, the Steamboat Willie, right? It was all written by hand. Uh, back in the fifties, we you know, the Disney did all that shit, but like, you know, so here we are, but except it's paint. Um, and so w- watching that now, I was able to kind of look past that for the second time around and just focus on the story and the story itself, like there, the suspense, uh, and how they're, they're kind of telling the story and taking you through the character development and all these, and all these, the, the aspects of, of, a of a good plot and, and and good theatrics, you know, uh, it's it, it's a good standalone movie. Mm-hmm. If it, now, if there were actors and it wasn't animated, obviously they would they would have to f- kind of fill in the background with a little bit more busyness, um, where the paint kind of does that for them here. Uh, but but the the dialogue, you know, the script, the screenwriting, the the screenplay itself is was was done so very well. And and it it's it's a standalone movie, on the story alone it's it's good. The fact that it's all hand painted kind of takes it up to, uh, holy shit, right? Yeah. And and let me let me as I kind of hinted to earlier, um, the first time I ever saw Van Gogh in person was the beginning of December. Uh, so uh, Christina and I uh, took a trip to uh, a weekend. Uh, of craziness we went to to new york city and we went to the met and to moma so the met has van gogh's self-portrait and a bunch of his work and moma has starry night and so Uh, we uh. we were able to kind of get the full spectrum of of his stuff and and to be able to get close enough to see the brush strokes and that there was the connection. So here is his painting. Here is something that he did himself. And then it, and it for the movie, the connection to the movie, because parts of the movie look dirty. And they look dirty because it's hand-painted. And Van Gogh used big, wide, heavy brushstrokes. Because the guy didn't start painting until he was, what, 28? It was... It was- because he Something spent like most of his life trying to figure out what he wanted to do. Right. Like he he tried to he tried to get his cut into the art scene by by being an art dealer. You know, he was selling art, and that was how he was trying to finance his his own. But he wasn't getting enough to do what he wanted to do. And when that fucked out, he said, "You know what? I'll go into the family business and go into religion." Um. He didn't cut it in that either. <laughs> Religion as a business. Oh, right. That's a show by itself. <laughs> so, Moving so on. when that didn't work, well, so when that didn't work out, he was like, "Okay, so let's do something else." And his biggest supporter was his brother. His brother, like single-handedly, financed his entire uh, hand, um, you know, finance Van Gogh's entire career, and. The thing about that is like that's a that's kind of what brought them together. They they 
they bonded over that, you know, and they even had issues over that. And the the rough part about that is is the the movie paints their relationship so well. So well. And you you truly get to see um the devastation on his brother's face when uh he realized you know, after he's passed and uh it's in one of those uh memory bips and you see him sitting on the floor looking at all of the paintings that he had. And it's it's incredible. And uh one of the first big books that I, I read uh growing up was a book called The Lust for Life. And it's um uh, Jesus fucking Christ. I can't talk. <clears throat> um Take your time, it's okay. It's a You got uh, this little buddy. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> You're fucking me up. Um, you know, it's, you know, biography turned story of Van Gogh and, you know, it goes from early on to his life, goes all the way to the end. And it talks about his, his death where, uh, his brother put all of his paintings on display. So when people came to see the body that they saw all of his work. So essentially his death was his first show of showing his work. And it's like, how fucked is that? Let's make this crazy, right? So, in reality, at that funeral, at that viewing, at that that wake, right? Amongst his his casket right there is sitting paintings that are now protected by people with guns. Yeah. So, so there's there's the perspective. Like, you know, and and I think that's one of the cool things about art. And I, I don't have the love of art that you do. I, there's certain pieces of art that make me feel things, um, kind of like you, but like it's it's different. Like you look at all these paintings, you can see all these things, and and, and I only have that reaction to, to a, a few, but standing in, some, in front of something that is notorious or that is renowned is powerful. And I yeah. felt that standing in front of Starry Night. I felt that standing in front of his self-portrait. Like, like this dude was just a sad, crazy dude. Maybe. We don't know. Looking at Starry Night, I kind of believe he was a little crazy, as as most artists are, right? They got to be to get their, whatever's yeah, going on in I, their brain out onto canvas. Uh, that's a debate for later. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's this like, this, this huge, I, I don't know, because it's notorious. It's it's well known. It's this huge uh, thing that everybody knows. Everybody knows what Starry Night looks like, even if they don't know what it's called, even if they don't know who painted it. They've seen it before somewhere, and and something that well renowned from an artist. And to think that that was that painting was just propped up against a casket or on a freaking little like tripod stand that you see at these funerals that hold like flower wreaths and shit like that. You know what I mean? Right. Like I, I <laughs> you can't imagine going to to you know. Uh, Grandpa D's funeral, and here's freaking you know what are now multi million dollar paintings just kind of hanging out and just right. sitting there, uh, and now they're treated with you know special oxidization gloves and freaking environmental yeah. controlled you know boxes and all kinds of crazy shit. So, um, which is wonderful, and 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 I'm glad that they're being preserved that way. But there's there's that that touchback, you know. 
that some of those very paintings that you can go see that are protected by people with guns were just kind of sitting out and and present and they were just some of his crazy work and and one thing the movie talks about is like how much work there was and and how often he painted and how often he drew and all the things that he did and so you kind of wonder if you know he did uh if he drew something on a napkin right because you know how you have like you, you know your your bar ideas you write them on a napkin right what if he just sat down at the bar one night and had a towel because he got towels from the bar maker, right? Instead of canvases because he couldn't afford them. And and what if he just kind of drew something on that and he just handed it to his buddy and that buddy took it and now that, you know, that's become a family heirloom that's just sitting in somebody's freaking, you know, on somebody's wall in a house in France. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that it, possibility that exists is fucking phenomenal. Right. And, and chances are... Um, there are paintings of his that are probably still just chilling in somebody's attic. No, no fake because, um, uh, and so in a decade, he created a little over 2000 pieces. And I think they've been able, they've been able to, uh, figure out that, um, that there was about 860 oil paintings that he did. And, most of those happened in the last two years of his life. So he he genuinely had hit his peak at his worst point in time. So taking taking the movie and the whole potential he was accidentally shot and stuff like that out of the out of the equation and just letting history dictate that he killed himself. Genuinely, the height of his career. He did so much, but it still went unnoticed, which is, and the fact that there's ideals of not being appreciated in your own time for artists, whether it's, you know, painting, drawing, you know, musicians, whatever, is ridiculous. You have to die in order to be appreciated, which, which is totally fucked, totally fucked because my... My thought pattern is what would his life had looked like if he had gotten the appreciation that he has now? How how many more paintings would we have of his? How many more paintings would fill museums? Granted, he did a shit ton as it was, and chances are there are some that are just floating out there that haven't been found, not found, but haven't been you know, cataloged as being his. And they're just out there. So chances are, in, in another hundred years, I would have no doubt that they discover more. I think uh, last season uh, in our podcast, we they had found a new uh, painting of his that was legit just chilling in somebody's house or it just had been sold. And yep. again, millions of dollars worth. And and it was, in, and had just sat around. And it's not in, you know, protective glass or, you know, protected by people with guns. It's just in somebody's house. Right. But at at the same time, how cool would that be? You walk into your living room, you just kind of look around the walls, and you just have a nice little Van Gogh just, you know, just chilling on your wall. Just chilling on your wall. Yeah. Yeah. I did a tour through uh, the Biltmore Estate, and uh, in one of the rooms there, they just have a couple of Monets just sitting, just sitting on the wall. 
And I was like, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> what? Why is like, this here? That's not real. <laughs> but uh, yeah. But I mean, let's let's bring it back to to reality and and the fact that there may be more of his work out there. Let's let's bring it back to Fillmore, New York. A couple buys a house in Fillmore, New York. They go up in the attic, and they're there's a bunch of shit up there left by previous owners. They start digging through and they find a painting. And on the bottom right-hand corner of that painting says P. McGlynn. Oh, shit. I know right. Jerry McGlynn. So somehow our great-grandfather painted a picture for whoever the previous owners were of whoever this house, you know what I mean? Uh, and there it is. So if if our great-grandfather, who wasn't a prolific painter, you know, was a painter but wasn't a prolific painter, right? that people can find rando Peter McGlynn's in their attic. You know, uh, I have, I, I have no doubt in my mind that there are Van Gogh's in people's houses throughout France. Um, Oh yeah. And, and there's people that know about it and they hide them because oh, yeah. them, them hanging onto that is more important and it's more, it's more valuable to them than any money would ever be. That's, that's the cool shit. And that's, those, are the, yeah. those, those are my people, you know, I'm going to hold on to this. You know, yes, I could sell this and become a millionaire overnight, but you know what? Uh, no, this has been in my family for years and it's going to stay here, you know, and that this is where it belongs. See, for me, it, it goes beyond um, it being in my family kind of thing. If if I have something like that, I'm not telling anybody I'm not going to sell it unless I'm absolutely desperate for money. Like, and I'm talking like destitute, desperate, because not only do you have a, you know, an amazing piece by probably one of the world's most famous artists and then other people like, oh, he's not as famous as this person, not as famous as this person. It's like, okay, but you barely have to say the name Van Gogh and people know exactly who you're talking about. That that's pretty big notoriety. I mean, that that's pretty big. So if you have one of these paintings, you're, you are in possession of legit history. You, you legit have something very few people have. At least few people have and appreciate what it actually is. Like, I remember the first time I saw a Van Gogh in person. And it, and it, I wasn't anything spectacular. Like it's not like one of, you know, it's not starry night or anything like that. You know, one of a, a kind of like a lesser known one. I still found myself just standing there staring at it. And there was, there was something about his, his style and his, his vision that just is engrossing. The, this, the, you know, his, his style is constant movement. No, no painting of his ever looks like it's just there. You're constantly, your eyes are just going everywhere because his, his style was very fluid. It was very, you know, it always worked into another part of the painting. So you're constantly just looking everywhere and you can see it as an image, like you know what he was going for, but then when you get closer, that's when you see the individual brush strokes. You see 
layers and layers of paint and it's just it's incredible that was something that christina pointed out when we were sitting here looking at um i think it was at self-portrait and uh she she was like you know look at uh so in, on on some of it it was either on his beard or his hair i don't remember but she said you know you could see there was four different colors you know, uh, so there was layering. There was, you know what I mean? So, yeah. like, so not only did he hit that one time, but he hit that multiple times to get multiple colors inside of this to, like, make the whole picture. And um, what's cool is when you, and again, it happens in the movie, too. You kind of, when you look close and you you kind of put yourself into that little hole, you know, you lose the picture, right? You look at the brush strokes. You look at this tiny little area, and you can see, you can see motion. You can see movement. You can see uh lines and colors and oh actually christina's showing me a picture of it right now um she took a picture of it but um uh, it was just below his uh his left eye mm-hmm. is where uh all the those layering was you you lose the entirety of that so you 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 get lost in the brush strokes and i think that's one of the coolest things about van gogh so like you look at a picasso you, that doesn't happen with that, right? You're just you're looking at five boobs, seven eyes, and two noses, right? You're like, what the fuck is he like? Let's do it. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, okay, so it's like four and a half boobs. But anyway, um, you know, it, it's not the same. And, right. and yes, can you go find brushstrokes on any painting? Sure you can. But it's, it's mm. not the same. When you look at that small space um, of a Picasso, like you said, it, it moves, there's there's motion there's movement and then when you back out of it then you get the whole picture starry night looks like it's moving um the what was it the cypress um looked like it was moving it looked like there was a breeze when you looked at it as a whole you know and 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 that's really really super cool how how all of that came together and each individual artist i'm not shitting on picasso and i'm not shitting on you know these other artists or anything like that i'm not because you know they've all contributed and added you know phenomenal things to the world of art and that's great but van gogh's style works for an animated movie yes and and so although the work was crazy and and insane his style of painting was damn near perfect to make an animated movie out of and Mm -hmm. uh i don't feel as though there was a lot of work they had to do other than maybe adding a couple extra yellows and whites to make something look like it was going back and forth or sliding from left to right uh you know and (laughs) that sounds like i'm being dismissive of the work i'm not um but uh but his style of painting really kind of lent the ability to make this movie what it was, and mm-hmm. and this movie is is a piece of artwork that's <laughs> that you can watch on YouTube or yeah. you know wherever else you can see it. And I would really, really encourage anybody to go see this movie, whether you're an art person or not. Just mm-hmm. go check it out. Watch it once. If you hate it, so be it. You know, blame Josh. But. Uh, i'm kidding um but but it's worth watching and then if you get the opportunity to see a van gogh in in person you know that's that's like the the brings it all together moment you know that's that's where everything kind of comes together and you're like i get it i get it now um i get it how that worked and how they did that and and those pictures and how that all put together and it's a pretty 
intriguing story as well. It's entertaining. I say, I say, outside of any artistic side of it, it's it's a good movie. It's a very well done and enjoyable movie. Absolutely. So it 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 works on all levels, and and technically speaking, it was a box office hit. Granted, most of the money happened overseas, but. They, you know, their budget was like 5.5 and they walked away at 43. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a success. Granted, compared to, you know, recent years with, you know, fucking Marvel and Star Wars and shit like that, you know, that doesn't seem like it's much of a success. But it, when you put in, you know, $5 million and you make that and a whole bunch more back, that's a success. Fucking for sure. Absolutely. And, and the fact that it wasn't, uh, you know, they made that money everywhere else but the U.S., that's right. That's pretty good. That's pretty says good. that the U.S. isn't fucking cultured. Yeah, they'd rather see you know Chris Pratt and freaking uh, comic book Hems- heroes and Hemsworth. Boobies. Hemsworth. Well, I mean, who wouldn't? See, but anyway, sorry, you said boobies. I got, I got distracted. <laughs> now you're good. <laughs> anyway, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. So, uh, so great movie all the way around. We've talked about the cast. We kind of talked about the storyline. We've talked about the the construction. If you watch this movie, do not forget to watch the making of special. That kind of puts everything into perspective. So it's a great movie. It's awesome. The animators that put this movie together need that credit, and they need to be praised equally. Um, the actors did a lot of voice work. That's about all they did. These guys were the ones in the studio doing the work, um, making right. the paintings, doing all this crazy shit and putting it together. And so so really take the time. And uh, I will post the links. Um, obviously, I think that it's all uh, pay-to-play kind of stuff. So if you'd like to drop two ninety nine to rent it for two days and watch it, I would strongly recommend that. Uh, I believe the making of is free, though. So those links will all be in the show notes. And hopefully you can partake in this show, uh, this wonderful movie as well. Josh, any parting uh, thoughts on loving Vincent? A little bit, yeah. Cool. Just, there is, not that this gives anything away, but there's this bit at the end where, and I wish I would have I would have looked it up to see if this is historically accurate or not. Um, there is a bit read out of one of Van Gogh's last letters to his brother. Um and the best thing about it is that as Van Gogh, like it's a voiceover, Van Gogh's reading it. And the the scene, you know, back does a kind of like a big draw out and it does another one of his, um, it's technically another Starry Night, but it's Starry Night uh, over, uh, fuck, what is it? Starry Night over, I'm going to fuck up the name, Roan? Uh, I'm, I'm probably saying it wrong. Because there's a there's a letter with a little check over top of it, so it's <laughs> so um so as you see this painting and it's like oh that's that's one of his paintings again. There's this voiceover of of the last bits of this letter, and then again the stars start doing their their Van Gogh thing, and then it blends into his self portrait. Mm. So you get. You get this letter, you get multiple paintings, you get this incredible score, and that's how they wrap it up. And legit, like, I'm sitting there, I'm watching it, and, like, I have my hand on my face, and I'm just like, 
Like I'm getting an emotional reaction from all of this put together. And it's like people who say that art can't speak to anybody is kidding themselves. 100% kidding themselves. They just haven't seen the right piece in my opinion. So I'm not an art guy, but I, I can absolutely confirm what you just said. And it was uh, last December when I stood in front of uh, Morning on the Sien uh, mm-hmm. by Claude, LeMay, or, uh, Claude Monet mm-hmm. for the first time. And so he, he painted that like 13 different times because he went out different times a day and painted that same scene at, at different times and whatever. So there, I think there was like four or five of them that were all there side by side. Um, and I, I found myself hearing like frogs croaking and crickets chirping and seeing something that was not moving move, yeah. you know, uh, and having that moment of just kind of, losing it where that like that painting was that that was it for me that mm-hmm. that has done that for me and now you know I, it's probably a, a bias that has formed you know for him because you know when we went to the met they have an entire room full of his shit and that's where i spent most of my time you know washington crossing the delaware is cool because it's fucking monstrous but like you know <laughs> this other stuff was better um yeah and and so that's that's a thing. And I, I think it's 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 about the person. So you may look at a Van Gogh and be like, meh. Mm-hmm. Right? But you look at a Picasso and it makes you cry. Yeah. You know? Um you you look at, you know, any any one of the, the, the big artists and, and there's that there's that moment. And and that's the cool thing about art is what speaks to you and it's the same thing could be said about music the same thing could be said about you know uh videos and and books and all that shit like you know these these sources of entertainment these sources of art uh which they all are they're just different forms dance theater they're all video film you know different things will will speak to you and then and they will make you have an emotional reaction an unsolicited emotional reaction. And I think that's the big difference when you're standing in front of something, all of a sudden you're just like, what the fuck is happening right now? Or you're watching a movie and all of a sudden, like, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but all of a sudden, like, you're like, there's tears. You're like, what the fuck? Like it surprises you, right? There's this emotional reaction to something that is so beautiful or, or triggering or responsive, or, or it just speaks to you in a way. And, and that's cool. Like that's art. Art has the ability to do that, and and that's amazing. Um, and it can be anything. So, it, and I and I'm saying this as a disclosure. To, you know, if you go and stand in front of, you know, one of the greatest paintings in history, right, and you feel nothing, that's okay. Yeah, it's okay. If you go and stand in front of a nobody's painting and all of a sudden you your heart is beating fast and your face is tingling you know what i mean uh, well done you made it you're there you know it doesn't have to be you don't have to have these these crazy emotional responses to 
popular pieces of art, you know, and, and that response is okay. You can hate this movie and that's okay. Yeah. We'll judge you for it. We but will. It's okay. We absolutely will because it's a good fucking movie. But, um, but anyway. All right. Well, we have been rolling at this for almost two hours. So I, uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to dial that down. Half of that was whiskey talk. And then the other half was, right. ours. so <laughs> I believe that this was probably one of the most balanced shows we've ever had. And we did an hour uh, yeah. of whiskey. We did an hour of art. So like, we got a lot of you in there. We got a lot of me in there. We're, we're good to go. Bitching. Bitching. All right, folks. Uh, so please come join us Thursday night, 730 on Twitch. Come check us out. Uh, we are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We are on I, I, pretty much everything. Josh is our social media guru. He's the guy. So when you're talking to us on social media, you're talking to Josh. Um, follow him for all of the crazy shenanigans. And uh, and come join us. Have fun. Uh, we will be back live broadcasting here very soon, although we're not really sure when this will broadcast. Maybe we'll already be broadcasting back then. Maybe. Maybe. We don't know. We'll find out. It's always an adventure with us. All right. Bubba, I love you. Love you too, man. All right. Let's get out of here. All right. Bye, friends. Bye.